Hello, friend. You are listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod, an all things Wizard of Oz podcast that will take you over the rainbow and down a yellow brick rabbit hole as we pull back the curtain on American culture's most visited fairyland. We are your hosts, Tara and MK, the royal revisionists of Oz and roommates in Queens, New York here to preserve the rustic emeralds of yesteryear and reimagine an Oz for today and future generations. This season, we will be deep diving with the melodies of the many musical adaptations of L. Frank Baum's original Oz book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, taking up residency in the 1939 classic MGM film, as well as the 70s super soul hit, The Wiz. Visit our Insta at Down the Yellow Brick Pod for an accompanying scrapbook and fave space to connect, as well as our Patreon community where we continue the escapism and entertainment with Tiny Oz concerts, acoustic coffee shop covers and mashups, not sponsored by NPR, and other good witchy perks for each Patreon tier. Our Patreons are truly our MVPs. Consider joining our Oz fam today, it would truly make our day. May the world of Oz continue to be a bewitching escape in bewildering years, nostalgic and nuanced, and a magical refuge where two gals and queens can cross yellow brick roads with wonders like you. Night time sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness <laughs> and wakes, I don't know how this goes, imagination. The whiz was in this theater. Can you guess what theater it was in? It's going to open on Broadway before a masked man comes in. Can you guess this music of the night? That was your best performance to date. She is improving this morning. I thought you wrote that. That was fierce. Thank you. Thank Don't you. Don't know I- how this part goes. Imagination. That's not how it goes. Wait. We'll figure it out. I'm obsessed with everything about this because Phantom was my first musical, like, introduction to the world of musical theater ever it is the first musical i saw on a class trip and i had binoculars yes i went on a class trip too and i cried you had binoculars the majestic theater a majestic home to the whiz which is finally easing on down we are eating oh, down. Let's be real. Schlepping on down. Schlepping on down. <laughs> yeah, nothing about this is easy. <laughs> so we're just going to get right into it, right, Em? Let's just go Let's because... Just dive. Folks, this is a lot of history that we're giving you, but it's important history. This is very important. Okay, so The Wiz, opening on Broadway now, finally, in December 1974. First preview performance on Christmas Eve. Will this be cool Whoa. in our stocking, or will it be presents on the tree? <laughs> The question is abound. Good question. Y'all, the response in these opening previews was trepid, empty seats, not a lot of money, just 
to know what was happening financially, the show's operating cost was $67,000 per week. They oh, wow. were bringing in, I think, in the first week of previews, a little over $35,000. So that's not even, that's like, that's not great. Like, yeah, it's not great. It's, it's just about over half. Um, the next week got a little bit better, better, better. The next week got a little bit better, but they're, they're not able to pay their bills. So this is not going well. But they do in this time get Sandra Manley, who is a press agent with the Merlin Group. She just formed this yes. agency. She's super young in the business. She had just done the 1973 revival of Irene starring Debbie Reynolds. Yes, Debbie. I think also Carrie Fisher made a cameo in that. We'll talk about uh, that. In, never, we'll never talk about it. It makes no, there's no we'll sense. For totally that. loop back to that. <laughs> yeah, we will not loop back to it, but go oh, look it up if you care. If you care about that mother-daughter duo that Em and I so love, much love. Love them. Okay, so this was their only Broadway show when they were hired for The Wiz. So they're very excited. They have the energy. They have that young energy that's like that hustle, like, let's get this show out there. So they basically, they saw the show not doing well. And they were like, let's just throw tickets at disc jockeys, talent coordinators for radio, freelance reporters. Like, let's just get people in here. That was their main, that was their first approach. Um But it was kind of like they didn't have anything to lose. The show was not doing well. It looked like the show was going to close after opening. That's what everyone was feeling. Um, There was a closing notice ready to be posted, um, which is crazy. They all felt that warning. So opening night would come on January 5th, 1975. It would be a mix. It was pretty, pretty well attended, but it would be a mix of theater elite um, people dressed from characters from MGM's Wizard of Oz. Oh, no. <laughs> um, a mixture of um, racial backgrounds. Um, a lot of family and members and friends, though, of the people who were associated with the show, which is really, really great. This was noted in How the Wiz Was, the making of one of the biggest musical hits of the 70s by Jeremy Ofterhide. He noted the audience was enthusiastic, but not ecstatic. So it didn't have that magical turning point happen quite yet. So they did get some like AM New York thing that was helping um, with Stephanie Mills hit and battle Tiger Haynes and Ted Ross going on the radio. Like these like little tiny things um, were starting to happen, but it started getting not great reviews, um, mostly from white people, um, which I think is really important to know. So way back when, Em, when we were just getting started, I was doing some whiz research just for fun at the time. Um, And there is a really sad review posted by Clive Barnes on January 6th, 1975 in the New York Times that just feels like someone, like the show is not really for you, but he's like saying it's for him and understand it. But there's really, the thing that really stood out to me in this review that made me really sad to read now is this about Stephanie Mills. The little girl in the film, played by Miss Garland, was an utterly real person. The Dorothy and the Wiz never had a mo- never for a moment had those dimensions. So comparing Stephanie Mills to Judy Garland... 
calling Judy a real person and not right. Dorothy Lewis a real person. Do we um, listen to the lyrics of home? It's not right. <laughs> Do we listen to the lyrics of home? Do we listen? I don't think you did. Do we listen as soon as I get home? Like, I'm like, what is not real about this? Right. I mean, also noting too, like, I bet there's a lot of like musical theater purists to being like, oh God, the pop music sound coming to Broadway. This right. isn't Broadway. This isn't Broadway. And it's like, no, right. Broadway is informed by what is in culture. And then Broadway also in turn informs what is in culture. It's an, it's a give and receive. It's not a one way sh- street. That's the you know? beauty of it is you can take the story and reinterpret it. That's what we want to do. We don't want it to just be pigeonholed into this one thing for one audience. Yeah. Live. This is the kind of reviews they were getting a lot. A lot of review, like even this Clyde Barnes one was comparing the Wiz to Wizard of Oz even more but being like, you can't forget Burt Lahr. There's like a moment about that. Like who in memory must always be Burt Lahr. It must always be Burt Lahr is what is her in. Why? <sighs> well, guess what? Burt Lahr is dead. So He's if you around. to stay alive, it has to be someone else. This is what always happens. I was talking with a friend yesterday about Oz and he randomly knew that there was, you know, back in the early 1900s, a musical on Broadway. And we were just laughing about how, like, when the 1939 film was made, the purists were upset. They were like, why aren't you casting Fred Stone in the role of this? Why are you singing Budweiser? You know, and now it's the whiz of like, well, why isn't Burt Lahr in this? It's like, we always... And I'm guilty of that too, of being like, oh, why this is going to ruin the story for me. No, it can keep moving forward. And as you said, those actors aren't around anymore. So if you want it to be reinterpreted and to be able to see this show again, you got to cast new people. You got to open up your mind a little bit. Also, Ted Ross is amazing. And Ted Ross is amazing. These people are just as amazing. Everyone in this cast is incredible. And in the film. Yeah. So, okay, that was Clive Barnes. There was another one published, and it's called The Wiz Misses. <laughs> Just The Wiz Misses. Okay. Um, and it's also a very negative review about, like, how... Um, I mean, I'll just read this right here. I wish that everyone else connected with the Wiz, which is what Frank Baum's elderly fairy tale, elderly fairy tale, (laughs) (laughs) now called it the Majestic, had taken equal time to consider what constitutes good theater. It's not just a matter of working in now and again some remarkable octave jumps. Is it not, though? Is it not? I get very excited about an octave jump in the song. Some dynamic full stage dancing. The Wiz has both of these, though as often as not, it seems spur-of-the-moment stuff. Why is that bad? What good theater's got to do, if it's going to arrive safe and smiling at 10 o'clock, is make up its mind what it is and then stick with the heads or tails choice. Are we all for innocence tonight, with Toto the dog leaping into Dorothy's loving arms on command and the rusty tin man showing his deep gratitude for being properly oiled by easing into a lightly rhythmic tap? Or do we know better than that? Pockets loaded with jokes meant to make this the whole thing mod. So just like could not get behind, I guess, the style of this show. But it's so salty this review. Unnecessarily so. But of course, and again, like too, like he's like, how 
The scarecrow needs a brain and she chooses to sing about it. So how do we avoid mixing this tune up with Ray Bulger's? And it's to this new tune's disadvantage. <laughs> mm. Oh my goodness. People are just so possessive over <laughs> what they think is the right way to do things. Right. I mean, the performers pretty much always got good reviews, no matter, no matter, no matter what. At, at. But here's another thing. Everything is done confidently, mind you. It just doesn't have firm ground beneath it to say where it's from. Kansas, Harlem, MGM, or a kiddies matinee. Somebody forgot to say, we'll do the wizard this way this time. That's the end of the review. Hmm. So this stuff almost took down the whiz because it is what people use as a compass, especially now. Reviews are, I think, even more critical now because Broadway costs so much. So you want to know, like, oh, am I investing in a show that is going to be worth my time? I can't afford to see a stinger. Can't afford it. Yeah, I definitely I pay attention to reviews for everything in my life, especially, you know, shows. Expect, like I, I think pretty much nowadays, like I only see shows that I have friends in right. on Broadway. That's mm-hmm. pretty much it because I can't really afford Broadway. It's it's everything. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's one thing. And if I'm going to see a show that I don't know anyone in, it is because people are telling me I must see it. Right. But I will say. I usually go to see a show based off of an enthusiastic word of mouth, which yes. is what is going to get the whiz moving. Yes. So the publicity team, well, here's the big thing. Big thing happens. This is why the whiz is saved. The whiz was saved by a stockholders meeting. So on January 6th, wow. this is the day after they, they opened, the Fox suits were in meetings all day to decide whether they should even bother pouring more money into the show. And the, then this is what this book says. And I'm like, who was this person? Then someone pointed out that there was a stockholders meeting coming up. No one was thrilled about the prospect of standing in front of a bunch of angry stockholders justifying a million dollar loss. A million is a lot nowadays, but in the 1970s, this was astronomical. So they thought it would be easier to just throw money and keep the musical running rather than to admit defeat at this moment. Mm. So that was a big, big thing. Um, buying more time for the show, for creative marketing to kick in high gear, to kind of have this unconventional approach to creating a sustaining musical on Broadway. So they had a few months to like, okay, we, we just bought time. Let's figure out what we could do. And this is what is said by um, Wernerd Lieberfarb, a Fox Veep in charge of special marketing. Up until opening night, Fox was being guided by traditional theater thinking, watching the critics and waiting for them. That's absurd. Critics do their job, but that doesn't mean they should be our ad agency. So they're like, let's just like ditch this whole critical response because A, it wasn't good. They didn't understand the show. Mm-hmm. So they're thinking, what can we do? So Sandra, our girl, publicity agency owner, she is all on word of mouth. Like she's like, that's what's going to do it. Um, so she started making deals with advertising managers at radio stations. At Like example, WNEW, she traded $1,000 worth of tickets for $1,000 worth of airtime. So she's getting wow. these and stuff and also getting them on the radio. Um, okay. So then... This is a big thing. Ken 
sits down with them with Amsterdam News, which was a newspaper geared towards the black community. They do a special editorial on The Wiz and they go for it. They're like, you know what? This show was unfairly judged by crusty old white critics. Like they just kind of go for it um, who weren't able to respond to the story. It's not for them. This is not for them. So they get an editorial out too, which is calling in this kind of community support for people to be like, oh, I should see this show and go support, um, especially for black people. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Mills' mother is actually a huge part of this. Yes. So she would organize all these trips from their congregation, the Cornerstone Baptist Church. And that's where Stephanie started singing. Yes. Um, again, Stephanie Mills is our Dorothy in this original production. That was, in here, it says it was a chain reaction. Parishioners were calling each other, wanting to go back to see the show. Aww. It became a tradition. It became rooted into a lot of people's culture. Wow. And this is when everything they noticed changed. They dropped the ticket prices to half at the Times Square ticket booth. And that's that's it. The show started selling out. That's like the big, wow. that was like draw. All this stuff was really helping. And then they had sold out shows. And then they were throwing money at it because they were making more. So money started getting thrown at it. Um, They also took a page out of Pippin's book. So Pippin was one of the first musicals to do television commercials. I mean, this is huge. Broadway shows weren't yet really doing television commercials. Mm -hmm. So it says here, if Ben Vereen dancing with a couple chicks in battle armor could save Pippin, this TV thing could maybe work for The Wiz. So they would hire the same firm that did the Pippin spot, Blaine Thompson's firm. I think it was $30,000 they put into this. So they made a whole storyboard of what they wanted to show of the musical. Um, It worked. That's all. This commercial, this first attempt at commercial, once it started airing, The Wiz was grossing over $100,000 a week. And just to remind you, they were making $35,000 a week. Wow. Their first week of previews. So, hey, business is doing great. And this is some statistics they were finding. 50% of the audience was there because they saw the television commercial. They said word of mouth was significant in the beginning of the run, but then the television commercial was getting the consistency of people continuing to come in. Um, On the weekends, 65% of the audience was black, 50% on the weekdays. Um, And then they were also finding repeat performances were... A, a thing that just kept yeah. happening. We're seeing people come back with their grandchildren, come back with their next door neighbor, come back with their niece, come back with their nephew. Like it just was creating this kind of comeback culture to seeing a Broadway show. Cause yeah. sometimes I think, you know, you see a show once and that's kind of it, but this was having that. No, I see that. I saw the I saw the Wiz 20 times. Like there was yeah. that kind of thing starting to be said. So very, very exciting. Um, what was so cool is that, that's that's what made the show pretty special is that if you looked at the audience, you'd see kids, you'd see theater elite, you'd see upper class folks, you'd see the blue collar crowd, you'd see all different kinds of races. So it was a really beautiful collection of people coming together to sit in a dark space and watch the story. That's people were nicknaming, nicknaming the Wiz as the Disneyland of the East, which is pretty funny. Yes. Attraction from young kids. <laughs> and it was... It became this kind of revival meeting in the audience meets mixer meets rock concert. So the audience too felt they can talk back to the show, Mm -hmm. felt they can like 
you know, amen and praise, like bring some of church culture into the theater, which is so beautiful and fun. So it had like a little bit of an interactive quality, which I'm sure for white people in the seventies was interesting for (laughs) white people to watch. Right. Right. Yeah. Like maybe this was the first time a lot of um, white folks too, or even like an audience that was not predominantly white. 100%. Pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. So things are going. Ray Bulger was in the audience one night, got on stage. With hit and no. I literally wrote a note in my book, find these photos for M. Find these for me and I will frame them. <laughs> Thank you. He made a joke being like, Hinton stole my role. Yes, right. Lorna, Lorna was there. Lorna laughed. Judy As Garland's still there. Margaret Hamilton would go see the show. Ugh. Not Alexander Hamilton. But Margaret. <laughs> and Jack Haley, my boyfriend. Would he go was there? Yeah. Oh my gosh, everyone was there. Yes. So everyone that. was there. Yeah, people were going to see the show, especially when it was the hot ticket. Like, this is when it was hot, hot, hot. This was hot. Samuel French which they did it. Oh we my know, gosh. They, you know, they did it. Samuel French, which is um, a play publishing company. They were all over it. They were there. They got hits. Do you know um, who else was a, a really big fan of The Wiz? Who is also a huge musical theater name? Who? Mr. Stephen Sondheim. So Stephen Sondheim apparently saw the show six times and he was a huge fan of it. And in this book, Broadway the Musicals, by Peter Felicia. I hope I'm saying that right. He says that because obviously Sondheim's shows were like hitting big right before this. And his shows are a little bit more like you got to really be focused. It's a little more oh, yeah. highbrow. You know, it, it is that sort of like elite theater experience, which is why I never even knew who Sondheim was growing up because it was going over my head. Yeah, yeah. And basically he says a lot of people probably went and saw the show just based on Sondheim's um, representation. So in addition to that, Sondheim and Frank Rich, who was like a huge New York Times uh, contributor during that time, they had all of these interviews together uh, at Oberlin College. um, And here's a quote, just so we get a little more context. Uh, From the Cleveland Jewish News, they reported on their Oberlin appearance, quote, Sondheim said, movies are photographs. The stage is larger than life. What musicals does Sondheim admire the most? Porgy and Bess tops a list, which includes Carousel, She Loves Me, and The Wiz, which he saw six times. Sondheim took a dim view of today's musicals. What works now, he said, are musicals that are easy to take. Audiences don't want to be challenged. He's not. Kind of an interesting um, quote. He's not wrong. Or I don't know. I don't think producers want to take risks. I will throw that back. Yeah. Sondheim grew up in a time, and for those who do not know who Stephen Sondheim is, he's considered one of the greatest composers to ever come into the musical theater canon because of his complexities he gives to characters, his dissonance that he creates in his music. His music is not hummable, as often will be associated with him. It's definitely more character-driven and about the story. So a lot of his stuff doesn't make sense out of context. You have to go see the full score. Um, And it's quite masterful, the work he does. Um, Sweeney Todd, Sunday in the Park with George, Company. like These are some of the company, which has a current revival that is going to be reopening. So I think... 
I so I did my whole my musical. This is when college is important. I did my musical theater thesis. This is the only time. <laughs> this is the only time. Um, I did my musical theater, like my big thesis paper on Adam Gettle and Floyd Collins. Yeah. Um, and I also used a lot of Kander and Ebb's book, Colored Lights, which I believe was written. I can't remember if it's like autobiographical. I can't remember how that book was written. But they talk about in their day, which was Stephen Sondheim's day as well, there was risks being taken. Like they were able to flop on Broadway. They were able to have that experience before maybe writing their a masterpiece, you know, or writing something that would be a critical success. That doesn't really happen anymore. People are like flopping in basements on scene, you know, and because even in some of these flops, there's still usually something that's gold, right? Like there's something, yeah. there's a song that's like that song at least is amazing. Um, so that's, I think the big difference. And that's what I based my whole thesis too off of like Floyd Collins is one of the best musicals I've ever listened to. And it's very much in the Stephen Sondheim world. And in Stephen Sondheim, will often say, um, what song do you wish you wrote that you didn't write? He will say the riddle song from Floyd Collins by Mm -hmm. Adam Gettle. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's crazy. Like this show does not get done because it's, that's the temperature we're at. It's an amazing show. It is a show for people who love rabbit holes because it's about one of the first media circuses in American culture of a minor who gets trapped underground at the turn of the century and because of the media circus he dies he would have been survived if people couldn't stop focusing about the story but rather the human right like he would have survived so it's a crazy story um yeah and that musical just could not find like the critical success too um and Adam Gettle is an interesting guy too because he's light in the piazza. If you're familiar with that, that was his probably his biggest. But he's really hasn't written a ton more since then. Nothing mainstream. Yeah, and when I saw, I think this is what I shared with you. I'm not sure if I shared this on the podcast or just with you. And when I saw Stephen Sondheim in conversation, he mm. said Charlie Walsh, The Wiz, one of my favorite composers. Yes, like just so easily and like raved about The Wiz. I'm sure it's because. Um, the sound like the sound of the whiz right. is so specific right like it's, yeah. uh, it's so cool yeah. so that's amazing that he helps support right the whiz. I mean, he that's was a big name so i'm sure people took his word for it you know yeah that's like a good ally in a way too because yeah. helping yeah helping yeah okay so cast album now is the is the thing on yeah. the menu uh so f- it looks like Fox didn't care about the cast album. Like Fox is kind of now just like, okay, good. It's doing fine, but we don't really care anymore. They're the producers. So they go to Atlantic um, to get the cast album made. They go into the studio on March 11th. It is released in April 75. It debuted on the billboard charts at 80 at 85. Um, there was a few singles of ease on down the road with Stephanie Mills hitting battle tiger Haynes and Ted Ross. They had one of the tornado um, they had one of Ease On Down the Road that was covered by Consumer Rapper. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. <laughs> and it, it became an instant hit. Great. I'm going to note that for myself to educate myself there. <laughs> um, Ann Sexton covered the cut of You Can't Win. And Johnny mm-hmm. Mathis covered If You Believe. So, Wow. 
lots, lots of covers happening. So the songs are getting a little Billboard chart life. And it was recorded. The album was recorded more like a pop album than mm-hmm. a traditional cast album. So yeah. that's important to note. Um, Ken Harper was like, Jesus Christ Superstar, everyone. Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, that's what we want to go in that direction. Um, that's my Ken Harper impersonation. There Jesus he is. Christ, for everyone. Jesus, like, who? I don't know who he is. <laughs> I really like liked those acting choices a lot. That was great. <laughs> okay. This is a good last thought. So at this time, <laughs> Jeffrey Holder <laughs> is feeling on scene. Okay. He's oh, our director, okay. costume designer remember him who came in you know and took over when gilbert moses was no longer working out reinstilled the magic if you will back into the ways he's feeling like the papers aren't giving him enough attention and he wants his own whiz publicity so he did something a little bit controversial at the time he went to the New York Times and said, write a story about me and how I saved the whiz. <laughs> um, I love them. Definitely caused some tension as reported here um, within the company who a lot of them still saw him as the replacement director. Um, and it created a little bit of animosity. Just felt like also this would cause a little dirty laundry that felt no. like in today's day and era would be aired on Twitter. You know, like no, drama coming at someone. It's basically that via New York Times articles. So a month later, after this article was released on Jeffrey, Gilbert Moses would release one in the Times. So it feels like his Twitter status coming Whoa, out. Oh, stop. I love it. Seeing that Gilbert basically just tightened the show's framework, but the staging was his. Like he was like, I did all of that. That was me. Right. Um, so it just was like drama. Their their drama was out. I mean, thank goodness. Meanwhile, the time, yeah. Meanwhile, at the time, the Wiz is like starting to sweep the Tony Wars, which we'll talk about in a minute. But let me just talk about this Jeffrey. I read the Jeffrey Holder article that was put out. Oh no! <laughs> it is titled by Eleanor Lester, Jeffrey Holder, the Wiz who rescued the Wiz. Here. Okay, I love how they describe Jeffrey, which is really fun in here. They say he was glowing like a Caribbean sunset. That's an interesting phrase. Okay. As he was just talking about this. And he says, darling, it was this way. I was the original director of the show. Ken Harper, the producer, contacted me more than two years ago and told me he wanted to do an all-black musical version of The Wizard of Oz. And he even says, I love the idea immediately and said, if it's black, it must be of course, be called The Wiz. So he's even taking credit for the title <laughs> right away, which I think it was him. Um, and then he just tells his story, which this is the interesting part. Then Harper asked me to recommend a Black director and choreographer. Well, I was a little taken aback by that because I am a director and choreographer. I've always choreographed my own dances and directed actors in movement. That is have wonderful. It's I it's terrible. I don't want to a little bit British. (laughs) I I think IPA. I haven't listened to him a lot, but Jeffrey Holder is like darling. He's just yeah, he seems yeah, great. 
He's marvelous. Yeah. People know I'm an actor too, but they call me and ask for James Earl Jones' telephone number. Oh. What could I do? I recommended Lewis Johnson, who had directed Pearly, and Donald McHale. McHale? Who did we? I, I also froze on his name last week. Who did Raisin? Harper said he thought I'd be wonderful in the role of the Wiz, and I said thanks and sold costume drawings for him. Some of these New York Times articles are incorrectly <laughs> transcribed. They're from, the, oh, they're no. from like a while ago. Yeah, long time. So, also interesting that that's how Jeffrey Holder views himself in the business as being like the person people love, like people call him to get closer to someone else. So I, he- I, I feel that, that way. Can get old. That can get old. And he's a little bit used. So yeah, he's basically just telling his side of the story. And, but he's saying like, they, this is mine. Like I was supposed to be the initial director choreographer. It was too much at the time, but then I didn't want to do it when they wanted to bring on a co-director. He's just telling his side of the story, I guess. Um, I love but, that it was all aired out in the New York times though. That's like yeah, a big platform. Like the word rescuing <laughs> makes me sound like a savior, you know? So right. right. There's also just like the shade is completely there for jo- for Gil Moses and George Faison. Like there's just like a little shade, hints oh, of shade yeah. there. Yeah. Um, the drama. He talks about how he works too, which is interesting. Meet me at my hotel room or the bar. And we start talking. We talk about everything in the world but the play, about our lives and how we feel about things. And we finally get to how we feel about the part. Then I say, now show it to me. And when we finally get to what we both feel is right, I say, good, now make it bigger than life. Good. Definitely. I love all of this. I mean, I think I would like him a lot. I have a feeling I would like he's to meet him. probably an extra over-the-top person, but yeah. most extra over-the-top people are because they have insecurities of some kind. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, and we all have our insecurities. Like, I think that's yeah. very human, but that's his way of compensating for them. I think this is shady that he did this New York Times article. I kind of love it. He was like, hello, um, New York Times, can we talk? So Jeffrey Holder also said, it's because The Wiz, Dorothy's search for Oz, is a universal story of growing up. Everyone, black, red, or green, goes through it. That rebellion, that confusion about what the world is like, all those fears until they know that they can always go back and find it. What is it? That love they have at home, of course. That's why Dorothy has grown up at the end. She understood this. This is also quoted in this magical New York Times article that is like pro Jeffrey Holder. Jeffrey also goes on to say in this article that his direction or vision of this show was just, it's something magical that takes over. So that's when the Mm. gods are out and you have to be there to receive them. I don't need more than about three hours of sleep a night. Often I paint all night. My painting has sustained me through everything. Three hours? Get it. That's, uh, I don't know. Get it, Jeffrey. I don't think I could do that, Jeffrey. (laughs) That would be rough for me. So that was a bit from that awesome New York Times article. Mm. Jeffrey Holder. Jeffrey! Claiming the narrative. Yes. Meanwhile... The Wiz, there was a musician strike that affected The Wiz for a little bit in the fall of 1975. Andre DeShields was one of the actors who mm. I, we, Em and I both love so much, mm-hmm. who represented the actors during that strike, saying, while we support the musician's right to strike, we want to confirm our own right to work. It's the performing artists that have been victimized. Very interesting. So this is something that has happened. 
There really hasn't been many strikes in our lifetime. I'm thinking of like the stagehand strike that happened. I want to say it was when I was in college. So anywhere between 2006 and 2010, mm. there was a big stagehand strike. Mm. I remember was like a... for two, two weeks, maybe like not every show, but majority of shows were closed. Wow. That's crazy. I remember like a, like a screenwriter's strike. Not too long ago. That went on for, like, a mm, long time. Yes. It's always fun to read about, but it sounds hard. Have you ever struck? Have I ever struck, like, a set? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Have I ever gone on strike for something? Have I wish I could talks? say. I'm trying to think if I've ever been on anything that even had talks that would going say, on strike. Mm, I don't think so. I don't think so either. That'd be cool. <laughs> like to threaten a good old strike we love we love (laughs) strike strike so the week ending january 4th 1976 almost a year in Mm -hmm. the way set a broadway record for the highest gross ever reached in a single week of performances bringing (gasps) in 155,848 get it the original cast album was the magazine record world chose the cast album as the top original cast album of the year and the tours are starting to go out other countries are also interested the Wiz won the grammy for best cast show album guess what it beat out chicago chicags dance 10 looks three <laughs> send in the clouds <laughs> And this is, I want to see if you guess this one. Okay. Why am I here? Why am I, am I there now? Why am I who? Oh, God, it's so fady. <gasps> Wait. You see, why was I given the body I'm living in? Why am I Gabriel? Why am I... Anderson, I I could be making this up. Why am I me? Why am I me? Do you know it? No. What is this? Shenandoah. <laughs> I never would have ever. Deep cut, everyone, and that's never would have ever. You want to know why I know that song? The Broadway Kids cast album. We love a Broadway Kids cast album. Thank you. Could you tell us a plot of Shenandoah? No. <laughs> I think I don't know. I, Shenandoah. I, I, I can't tell you a thing. That's all I know. So the song, but that, those lyrics are deep. Like why am I? Why was why I am given? I ga- why am I? Gabriel? Why was I given the body I'm living in? That's that oh, is deep. Shenandoah. Ponder that forever. That hit me when I was eight singing with. Why them. was I given? <laughs> oh my god. <gasps> wow! Amazing. Oh, okay. So then here comes the switcheroo of the Broadway houses. So Ooh. in that following spring, my girl Liza. She there wants, she is. She's in the act, which is a Ander and Ebb show. The they're act. announcing, they're with the Schubert organization, and they're announcing that they want to be in the Majestic. So, and because the Majestic was a premier Broadway house, the Wiz is asked to leave, but Ken Harper gets the offer of the Broadway theater. So, um, this makes me think, what shows can you remember having a house move? Ooh, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia is Winter one Garden I think of. To, I'm not sure where it moved to, but they definitely moved. Oh, Mamma was Mia was Lent Winter Fontaine? Garden to, like, Broadhurst, I think, There's or something, something like that. random. Broadway, maybe? I don't know. I'm not sure. No, I just Broadway, remember when Broadway. it moved, because for School of Rock, right? Yes. 
They were like, bye, you're out of here. <laughs> They've been there for a while. They're like, Dancing Queen is really haunting <laughs> these walls. We need we The need Winter Garden has a special place in my heart. It feels like a, because oh, of cats. amazing. It feels like a weird place. Oh, no, the cats are <laughs> I mean, yeah, the Winter Garden's weird. It's a rake stage too. Okay, what? That's hard. Yeah. What do, do you remember have shows stories about the Winter Garden? Do you remember shows that switched? Yes, the Disney shows. Mm, I think that's all true. of them have. They had um, switched at Beauty one point. and the Beast was at the Palace when I saw it in previews <gasps> when I was age six. Yes. Susan Egan. Excuse me. Yeah. She was there. Terrence Mann. Yeah. <sighs> um. Yeah. Six years Susan old at the Palace. And then Matt went to Fontaine. Oh, nice. Fontaine. Nice. Fontaine? Fontaine? I think it's Fontaine. Lontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontontont
But then the Wiz became a part of this big, massive I Love New York campaign in 1977. The New York State Department of Economic Development mm-hmm. wanted to dream up a new approach to New York to create to become a great tourist spot and give New Yorkers this new sense of revitalized pride. And they hired Milton Glaser, who did the Wiz art logo, to Whoa. do the famous I Love New York logo. New York logo. Yes. And they were using Broadway as something they could market off of as, like, a New York institution. So mm. many Broadway shows were invited to participate, and The Wiz was one of them. They yes. used in Subway and television ads. Oh, my god! And then this is where we get, we get into 1978, Universal mm-hmm. Pictures. Mm-hmm. Before we go in full into Universal Pictures. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. Them buying the film, which is noted immediately here. Biggest box office bomb of 78. <laughs> Get out of here. I'm like, I love it. Um, there's also some tours that are starting to happen. This is nuts. You're going to die over this. I'm scared. Okay. So, Stephanie, this is all happening in, like, the move, as the movie's coming out. Because Stephanie was doing The Wiz on Broadway as the movie was happening. Right. Um, she wanted to leave the show. Mm-hmm. She did the show for four years, eight times a week. That's a lot. There was a big call that was held on December 14th of 1978 at the Broadway Theater. The no girls way. had to be 18, Stop. less than 5'2", strong soprano belt is what was listed. Strong soprano belts. And Stephanie just wanted to go on vacation so bad that management <laughs> did not want her to leave. So they only hired Gail Lorene Turner who had played Dorothy on the tour to fill in for a month and just give, they just gave Stephanie a vacay. Yes, Stephanie, you but deserve that after get four to leave. years. They kept her, <sighs> which I, it is noted here. That's rough. Maybe we've already talked about it. I can't recall like her closing performance. We'll get to that. <laughs> so in January 18th night, on January 18th, 1979, the New York post published a rumor that the Wiz may close in a couple months. And then soon after that, it was announced the show would close on January 28th. And everyone was kind of like, huh? What just happened? There was just all of a sudden a closing notice backstage without real warning. The show was doing decently. Hmm. But there is rumor speculation that the show closed because Ken Harper was obligated by Universal to close it after the movie was released. So here it is. January 28th, 1979 becomes the closing night for the Broadway run of The Wiz. Drew an international audience from Africa, France, England, and of course, our home, New York. Our home state. It was oversold. Folding chairs were set up in the aisles to seat everyone. What? It just was crazy. Stephanie Mills broke (gasps) down. I'm getting teary-eyed. When? Do you know when? Singing home. Stop, stop, stop. Truly an emotionally charged night. They got 16 curtain calls. Six encores were after almost everything. Okay, here's some fun stats. You ready for it? I'm ready for these stats. Stephanie Mills walked over 4,800 miles, three miles per performance throughout the run. Three (laughs) miles per show? Uh huh. Oh my gosh. She wore out almost 25 pairs of silver slippers, costing (gasps) 220 a pair. Where are they? The production wore out almost 50 lion suits. 20,000 green balloons were let go. 300 pairs of sunglasses were used. 
1,000 pounds over it of glitter was used. Oh my, I don't <laughs> doubt that. And over the course of the run, the production used 180,000 sequins and 400 pounds of costume jewels. Those, they have to still be present in that Phantom of the Opera mess. Oh, please, I'm getting chills. Well, the Let's Broadway theater too. Let's go search that stage. Like, if there's a piece of glitter <laughs> on the majestic floor, that I'll is from the Wiz. And we're going to find the shoes. And then the rights were out soon after that. Of course, we were saying there were some tours, which we can talk about post yeah. we get through the movie. We can talk a little bit about the Wiz afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of tours and a lot of and a lot of amateur to professional production just started popping up. Um, the glory days of the Wiz were starting to end from this original run around July of 1979, I think is when they made the last tour. Of, of this official original production and we'll talk about the revivals all of that stuff this is far from coming over. yeah coming up later thank you so much for listening to down the yellow brick pod if you are feeling frisky with your fingertips scroll on over to apple podcasts and leave us a glowing rate and review <laughs> Each person who leaves us a review will be entered to win our end-of-the-season Oz giveaways, mm. including a gift basket of musical adaptation goods, which, trust me, you aren't going to want to miss. All previous reviews will also be considered in our entries. We see you. Until next time, catch us at Down the Yellow Brick Pod in our Technicolor scrapbook on IG and partying on our Patreon gratitude to our patrons of present and future for making more magic possible. Let's escape to Oz soon, okay? TTYL!